0: contracts, intellectual property, labor law, and much more. Make up the The wonderful world of entertainment law. Let's take a moment and learn about this vast area law. Lights, camera, action. And scene. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ninth episode of End Scene, and entertainment law podcast. I'm Tony Oikostas. And I'm Evan Narr. Tony, we are almost on our 10th episode, which is crazy to think about. Uh, And we will be recording two episodes next week, one with Mr. Free Speech himself, Ian Rosenberg. I am holding up his book right over here, The Fight for Free Speech, of which he was so kind to send me a copy of. Very excited to have him on. We will be in the P- and T Knitwear podcast studio to record with him. And then we'll be having a simulcast at New York law school during the intellectual property law symposium next Friday. So a lot
1: to look forward to. We're definitely busy. We got a nice full schedule. And 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 you know what? Listen, like it's like we didn't necessarily sign up for it, but it's like we took it on head on. And I think we're, uh, this is again, a credit to us.
0: It's all good things. And, and we're really looking forward to connecting with everybody and, you know, Talking about some really interesting topics. So, just like last week, it was a crazy week in entertainment. It's only Wednesday. HBO, we you know we know that they are rebranding their Max to Max. Max. Yes, they (laughs) they followed up the greatest television episode ever of Succession with crazy news that they're rebooting Harry Potter and merging Discovery Plus and HBO Max to just Max. Uh, And then Super Mario breaking twenty twenty three box office records and. Putting myself squarely in first place. Uh, listen, during... listen.
1: Hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second. <laughs> it's only one film. Only one film. Only one film. But let's not get too cocky here, Mr. Nar. <laughs> we'll see.
0: We'll see. So, a lot to look forward to. And this week, we will be talking about twin films and a favorite copyright infringement lawsuit of mine and Tony. And then we will also be talking about music licensing and how does that all work, especially in light of P. Diddy's recent comments on a podcast. And then we will talk about the potential Marvel-DC crossover that James Gunn teased in a Variety article. And lastly, our fun topic will be who is an actor and actress that you would like to see in a one-person show? They're the only people on the stage. Who is the one actor and one actress you would like to see in that 90-minute show?
1: And as always, just a reminder that Evan and I are lawyers, but we're not your lawyers. So anything that we say in today's episode is purely our opinion and not representative of our employers in any way, shape, or form. And more importantly, whatever we say in today's episode is not to be taken as legal advice. We've got a lot to get to. Let's jump in. So the first topic we want to talk
0: about today is something, a phenomenon in Hollywood called twin films. And this topic was spurned in a discussion that I had with my friend, this week, she was curious, you know, why do we have two movies that are kind of identical that release at the same time? And that really, you know, spurned my interest. And I actually saw a thread on Twitter about it. So Twin Films is basically when there's two films that are released kind of around the same time. And they're kind of about the same thing, too. They have a very similar premise. You know, there's a script writer, studios get wind of it, and they want to Produce it, and it's kind of a race to the box office. Who's going to get it out first? So you're thinking to yourself, what are some of these twin films? Let me rattle off a few for you: Finding Nemo and Shark Tale, The Wild and Madagascar, The Prestige and The Illusionist, World Trade Center, United 93, Friends with Benefits, No Strings Attached, Snow White and the Huntsman, and Mirror Mirror. Olympus Has Fallen and White House Town. The list goes on and on. And you know, the, obviously, we have different actors and talent. Attached to these different films, but they're loosely kind of the same thing. And this can cause some consumer confusion. You have two similarly plotted and often similarly titled films. And, you know, someone who's going to the box office, maybe an elderly individual or maybe someone who's not really in touch with what's going on in pop culture, it could be a little bit confusing. It can also confuse film executives, too. And this happened. In around the 2015 or 2012, actually. Uh, And it's it's a lawsuit that Tony likes to teach in his class. It's very, very interesting about consumer confusion, and I'll let him tell you about it right
1: now. Yeah, it's a great click case. And I think it highlights this phenomena that has taken place in, in Hollywood called mockbusters, where the whole essence of them are that they essentially mimic, in some regard, the plot line of a major blockbuster film. Of course, they're designed to be parodic in nature, and they feature like not even like B-list celebrities, like E-list, F-list celebrities, like no names you'd never heard of. But there was a very uh, unique lawsuit that stemmed out of the release of the 2012 um, release of the Hobbit movie, which had that you know the Hobbit had a variety of different um, movies. Uh, there was a trilogy that stemmed from it. Uh, of course, we this movie from 2012 was The Hobbit and an Unexpected uh, Journey. This was released in 2012, got a lot of buzz, but simultaneous to the release of this was another movie that came out called Age of Hobbits, which was very, uh, a very, uh, let me just say that it's very unique titling and also very unique marketing because they had hired Christopher Judge, who is the voice of, uh, Thor, if not I'm mistaken, at in, um, the uh, God of War. Uh, video game franchise. Is it, hired- you mean you mean Kratos, I think, right? Kratos, sorry, yeah. Kratos. Yes, yes, sorry. I knew that there's like Norse uh, yeah. mythology in that uh, franchise, but anyway, he's the voice of Kratos in God of War. He uh, he's like the only big name actor, and the whole essence of it is that, like you know, they're like in this village with, and it's I think this was shot in like Vietnam, and it's kind of like the whole essence of like mythological figures that are supposed to be Hobbit esque characters. It's it's your typical like fairy tale sci-fi mythological type of movie. Well, the problem was that uh, Age of Empire, Age of uh, Age of Hobbits, this mockbuster was released the exact same weekend as the Hobbits Unexpected Journey film that came out, and so uh, the, the marketing was you know you could buy it immediately. Uh, I think there was a DVD sale available for Age of Hobbits. And what's crazy is that the the movie poster, the front of the what was being used to promote this film, featured the exact same font as the Hobbit film itself that uh, Warner Brothers had been using to kind of market themselves, uh, market the film. So, uh, long story short, Warner Brothers got wind of it. Again, being mindful that Age of Hobbits was being released the exact same time as the actual Hobbit movie, told them they had to refrain from using. The Hobbit trademark because it was uh, registered under Tolkien Enterprises and was done in conjunction with Warner Brothers, and also they had to change the font type on the uh, on the marketing.
0: Yeah, it's 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 worth noting that like the word Hobbit was derived from the Lord of the Rings franchise by J.R.R. Mm-hmm. Tolkien, as you said. So it, I'm I'm curious like where they even got permission to do this, use the word Hobbit because it's not like a a word in the English dictionary, you know it, it, it's. A trademarked word, right?
1: Right. Well, it, it's the it's the kind of thing where it, they thought that it's kind of like an open public domain sure. type of word, um, but clearly they, you know, they um, they complied with only one of those uh, requests. They changed the font, but they did not change the word "Hobbits." So they fought it out for uh, basically three years. This lawsuit ultimately came to an end in the uh, in uh, California. I believe it was the uh, night Actually, it went to, all the way to the ninth circuit, and um, this case was ruled in favor of Warner Brothers mainly because the argument came up: is the use of the word "Hobbit" in a title, movie title like this, enough to cause some level of consumer confusion? Mm-hmm. And th- this the lawsuit was on the basis of a trademark infringement claim that you know Warner Brothers was alleging that uh, Global Asylum, which was the production company that made *Age of Hobbits*. Was violating the uh, the trademark rights that belonged to Tolkien Enterprises, and you know clearly there was some level of consumer confusion that could arise, and they you know they were able to show data that profoundly showed that people thought *Age of Hobbits* was related to the actual *Hobbit* *Lord of the Rings* trilogy that was being uh, released in theaters and was certainly uh, actively marketed on Warner Brothers' end. And that's the other thing to bear in mind. Trademark infringement cases are super, super, super expensive. They're not the cheapest lawsuits whatsoever. So when you have a lengthy lawsuit like this and you're supplementing it with hard, cold, cold, hard data that shows evidence of consumer confusion, bottom line was Warner Brothers was not playing around. They were taking this case very seriously. And so to expend likely hundreds of thousands of dollars on market research and case studies to show actual data of consumer mm-hmm. confusion... That was them basically telling Global Silent, go kick rocks because you have no idea what you're talking about. And, and, you
0: know, it's worth noting we've seen parody movies before. One thing that I mentioned when Tony and I were talking was Meet the Spartans is a parody of 300, the Leonidas Gerard Butler film um, directed by Zach, why am I forgetting his last name, Zach Snyder. And Meet the Spartans, I'm looking at it right now, came out in 2008 whereas 300 came out in 2006. So, I mean, yeah, could a consumer be confused? Maybe, right. but I, I mean, there's an argument under parity, under fair use here uh, to not be infringing on any trademarks or copyright. And then also there was a two-year hiatus here, whereas right. the, the, the the Hobbit, you know, th- this is kind of releasing at the same
1: time frame. So, that, you it, know, people... and one thing, Go ahead, go ahead. You know, what I was going to say is you have to bear in mind also that the whole essence of fair use, especially if you're going to milk it, you know, uh, or make an argument for fair use, the whole essence of that argument is: Are you? What are you criticizing? What are you commenting on? You know, and in this case, nothing showed that Global Asylum was doing anything that is parodic in nature. Right. They took this seriously, literally seriously. Right? Exactly. Meet the Spartans. It's designed to be. Uh, of, of parody. Look at even all the scary movie uh, franchise. That that whole franchise. Yep. The whole point of it is to poke fun at the horror genre. And that's exactly right. If you have like a, a production company or even a film franchise, a single film franchise that rides its coattails off of making fun of public discourse, culture, other phenomena in Hollywood. If you have that happening, then that then obviously the the fair use argument is going to work much better in your favor. But what Global Asylum had just nothing amounted to a valuable fair use argument here.
0: So very interesting. Uh, that'll wrap up the topic on, on twin movies, but we do often see even, even in Hollywood today, there are movies that are released in the same timeline that are very, very similar and you can toe the line. But if you are trying to do consumer confusion, if you are found guilty of that, then there will be legal ramifications, but you didn't see any, any legal ramifications for no three, no strings attached. And, Friends with Benefits. It was very similar, um, but no need to worry there. Next, we want to talk about music licensing. And we've briefly touched on this in one of our other episodes, but there was a comment that was made, some sort of discourse that was between Diddy and Sting about the song I'll Be Missing You and Every Breath You Take by P. Diddy and Sting, respectively. So before we get into that, we wanted to give you a little crash course on music licensing so i'll let tony you know share most of this because he is the master i I, i'm just the apprentice (laughs) but what i do want to share is is the knowledge that i have that i learned from tony basically whenever there's a song there's two underlying copyright ownership interests the first being an underlying musical composition which is basically the lyrics the sheet music and uh you know when the songwriter writes the song usually the copyright for that is owned by music publishers. The next one is the sound recording and that's basically ultimately when the underlying musical composition, the lyrics and all that is brought to life when the singer actually sings in a studio. 9 times out of 10 that is owned by a record label. Then licensing is brought into the fold here. When you sample someone else's song in your song, you can't do that or that's w- without getting permission or that is you know, infringement. We saw this in the Peters versus West case, Tony's favorite case. Talked about that all the time. So there are iterations of I'll be watching you and I'll be missing you. So Sting was on a podcast and he sh- he had this to say, and we'll play this clip for you right now. Is it true that Diddy has to pay you two grand a day because he didn't ask permission to sample every breath you take? Yeah. Wow! For the rest of his life. <laughs> wow! Yeah. No, that's a that's lot. no,
1: I read that before. <laughs> that's why I did he slip down from number one to number two on the Forbes list?
0: Oh my god! No, I'm saying. But did he ask <laughs> you for permission? <laughs> yes, he did. After the fact, yes, he did. Yeah. yeah, it was after. We're very good friends though. And now we'll play for you the similarities between the two songs. A little snippet of both. Feelings hard to conceal. Can't imagine all the pain I feel. Give anything
1: to hit half a breath. I know you're still living your life every after death. I take,
0: every, move I make, every single day, every time I pray, I'll be missing you. So as you can see, there's clearly a similarity between the two of them, but it was okay. P Diddy even said that he paid a
1: certain amount to Sting to use this. So Tony, what do you make of all of this? So I think I think it's important to note that there's a lot to this discussion that needs to be made very very clear when we're talking about music licensing. So first and foremost, I think the media is very quick to report on you know something very specific regarding oh well you know uh, P Diddy is actually paying five grand a day to Sting. And it, Well, that's obviously because that's what's, what uh, P. Deddy tweeted in response right. to that, that podcast or, or that recording that he did with uh, The Breakfast Club. But that, that's not how music licensing works whatsoever. You're, you're not paying a daily fee for licensing you know, for, for a use of another song to sample. So uh, one thing I want to make clear is when you're talking about music sampling of this sort where you're taking somebody else's song and you're incorporating it in a new, in a new song – type of license agreement that you need is uh, called a mechanical license agreement. Mm-hmm. These are agreements where you're basically getting permission from the music publisher and or the record label to use another song in a new work. So in this case, Every Breath You Take by The the Police, which obviously is uh, headlined by Sting. Sting, yes. Uh, that song had to – from what I understand, only the uh, sound re- – only the instrumental sound recording – uh, was used, but certainly the lyrics were incorporated, but were repurposed by female singers in P. Diddy's song. Mm-hmm. In that case, he, P. Diddy and his record label would have to get permission from Sting or the police's record label and their music publisher, whoever owns the copyright to the underlying musical composition of Every Breath You Take and acquire what's called a mechanical license agreement, which gives them the permission to repurpose that song in mm-hmm. a new work. And, and that's the mechanical license that basically governs the use of that song in P. Daddy's uh, song. Now, these mechanical license agreements are not done on a daily basis. You pay a flat fee and you call it a day. That's it. End of story. So it's very frustrating when I see uh, industry trade publications, especially like the likes of you know, like a Hollywood reporter, or maybe even uh, Billboard, yeah. Rolling Stone, like all of them saying, "Oh, P. Diddy is paying five thousand dollars a day." These are these are entities that have been p- reporting on music licensing and the music industry for decades. It's a reckless thought to think that you're paying on a daily basis. That's not how the license business, the licensing business, works, especially when you're talking about uh, uh, music licensing. Now, there is a world where staying is getting paid. On a more daily or let's say more quarterly basis, a la music royalty gets a mechanical royalty for every play of that song, but that's it. That's the extent of any daily, and I'm using that in air quotes. That's the extent of any daily fee that he gets. Uh, you know, beyond that, of course, uh, Diddy has come out to say that he was being facetious. He said in a recent tweet, "I want y'all to understand, I was joking. It's called being facetious. Me and Sting have been friends for a long time. He never charged me three k." or five k a day for missing you. He probably makes more than five k a day from one of the biggest songs in history, Love. So he even Diddy had to come out to say this isn't how music licensing works. It's kind of pathetic that he had to come out to clarify his comments. But I think he was just trying to make the general point that when you're when you're in the business of music sampling and when you're using a really popular song and incorporating it in what could be another popular hit song, you know, music sampling can is a, is a very uh, expensive process. You know, it's not as cheap as just like getting the permission, getting the okay, and being done with it. There's a fee that's attached to it. There are songwriters that need to be compensated. There's the mechanical royalty aspect to it, so on and so forth.
0: And, and it's worth noting that this interview was from 2018. It was recently resurfaced, and that's why Diddy commented on it. And also, the song I'll Be Missing You, of course, is about the late Biggie Smalls, notorious B.I.G., who was very close with P. Diddy. So the song was a kind of a homage to the late Biggie Smalls. And and I think both songs are great in their own right, personally speaking, but certainly they very interesting. <laughs> What's that?
1: They are great songs.
0: They are great songs, both very, very good in their own right. And I, th- I found it very interesting, as Tony said, that Diddy had to claw back. You know, the, the internet runs for these headlines, like, oh my God, 5K a day, because it sounds kind of egregious when you think about it, right? But he totally. did pull it back and... With Tony's expert explanation, we understand (laughs) why that's not the reality. And our last topic of the day is hot news from director James Gunn. We know and love him from... The Suicide Squad reboot, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, the Scooby-Doo franchise. <laughs> oh, which, my God. I totally
1: forgot about that.
0: You forgot? I mean, that was I, his I, greatest did. work? <laughs> like iconic. Um, very, very good. I think those were in the early 2000s. Matthew Lillard, of course, as Shaggy, oh, yeah. Freddie Prince Jr., Sarah Michelle Gellar, um, you know, just, just great all around. Anyway, so he is now the head of the DC comic division which was recent news, and he's kind of just taking DC to another level, and it's kind of laying out a plan for DC, which we haven't seen, really. We're kind of just seeing these discombobulated superhero movies come in, (laughs) come out. No coherent story. We obviously have heard about The Rock and Zachary Levi news and Shazam and, and Black Adam, so James Gunn is riding the ship. But, in a recent Variety article, how interesting is this? He said that it is possible that a Marvel Cinematic Universe and a DC Universe crossover could happen," he says. And I quote, "Who knows? That's many years, uh, many years away, though. I think we have to establish what we're doing at DC first. I would be lying to say that we haven't discussed it, but all discussions have been very, very light and fun. So, and also, superhero fatigue is a thing. You, you've seen recent box office flops of Shazam and Ant Man." and you know it's curious as to why that's happening right so this can be probably is going to be a very costly endeavor to merge two huge conglomerates of marvel and dc into a movie it wouldn't be the first time that it's happened but certainly everything would need to make sense and it's too much of a risk right now especially looking at the box office reports to do it so we've seen this groundwork laid in who framed roger rabbit before right
1: so tony why don't you give us a little background on that so if you haven't seen who framed roger rabbit please do excellent movie (laughs) i love who framed roger rabbit but mainly because i mean it's the first time that hollywood was ambitious with licensing so for anybody that doesn't know who framed roger rabbit is based on a book i think with the same title and it stars bob hoskins alongside this character that is the product of amblin entertainment which is steven spielberg's character uh, Roger Rabbit, and uh, was done in conjunction with Disney. But uh, my the understanding that we know from reports, uh, and you know this has been reported by the Hollywood Reporter on this point. Um, you know this was a, a project that was kind of spearheaded by Michael Eisner, especially once he came into the role as CEO of Disney in the uh, mid 1980s. So he worked alongside, uh, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg and, and Lucas uh, George Lucas when. Uh, he was at Paramount and was working on Raiders of the Lost Ark at that time. And when Michael Eisner came uh, into the Disney fold, he reached out to Steven Spielberg and alongside George Lucas, basically worked out a deal where Steve, Steven Spielberg would make this Roger Rabbit film as long as Amblin Entertainment and Disney had split the box office takes and also the licensing rights 50-50 because this was an Amblin Entertainment project and a Disney project. But this is the part that's crazy. Again, if you haven't seen Roger Rabbit, please do, because it's like IP, like disgusting IP central. It's like so much IP everywhere. Um, There's, you have Mickey Mouse and Felix the Cat and Betty Boop and Bugs Bunny and all the Looney Tunes characters. Why? Because it turns out that, again, this is from the Hollywood Reporter. This was reported back in uh, 20. I believe this was uh, 2018, June 2018. This is uh, from How How Who Framed Roger Rabbit Perfected the Art of the Crossover, Hollywood Reporter uh, article from Rafael uh, Motomayor. He wrote that Steven Spielberg was able to convince Warner Brothers, King Feature Syndicate, Felix the Cap Productions, Turner Entertainment, Fleischer Studios, and Universal Pictures' Walter Lance Productions to lend the character rights for the unbelievable flat rate of $5,000 per character. What a deal! i know crazy this should be a lawyer
0: good negotiator
1: (laughs) (laughs) really um the minor stip there were some minor stipulations like for example warner brothers wanted bugs bunny to peer alongside mickey mouse and have the same exact screen time as him and basically this became one of the more ambitious uh projects in american animation history uh as a result of this and because and because of this uh film Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny, this is the only film that they both share the exact same screen together. And, you know, they're like Mickey Mouse is an icon in his own right in the Disney World uh, scene. And then, of course, Bugs Bunny is the face of Warner Brothers. So for them to share screen time is incredible. I'm bringing this up because if that happened in the late 18, uh, 1980s, surely this is going to be the exact same thing that's going to happen with DC and Marvel. Where they're going to work out some type of term sheet, uh, hopefully memorialized by way of an actual contract. <laughs> not the par- like, oh, not the Paramount
0: uh, not or the, the HBO uh, South Park debacle.
1: Right, exactly. Um, you get that memorialized, and you figure out how you're going to how you're going to share the rights. I would see, I would foresee at the bare minimum, it's going to be a fifty fifty split, also on the box office takes. Um, and and you know, they listen. DC and Marvel could look at their own past history because they they're not uh, strangers to something like this they've collabed on comics before they yep. have a variety of d- different dc marvel crossover comics that were uh, published out there so i think that this would be an amazing opportunity this would be great for just not even for, forget about the whole uh you know uh like what narrative would they go for just from a from a comic book fan just, point of just view seeing- just, iron man and batman on the same screen absolutely like that would be just wonderful i I think any true comic fan would at least appreciate kind of like the nostalgic take of all these comic book characters coalescing coming together to really just tell a great story and yeah, superhero fatigue happens, but maybe this is like the defibrillator that will revive the superhero industry. Talk about box office records. If one of us picked
0: a, a Marvel-DC crossover, surely we would win our oh, little yeah, competition. Absolutely. I mean, you, you know, just the, the storied franchises, walking all, all different forms of life. I love both DC and Marvel. Certainly very interesting. And I have to say, if anyone can do it, it's James Gunn because- he is kind of like that liaison. He did very well with the Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy. Uh, well, we don't know how the third one will end, but that's we'll find out in three weeks. Yeah. And obviously, The Suicide Squad was a great reboot. John Cena, Idris Elba, uh, Joel Kinnemaker, or Kinnaman, excuse me. I don't know where I came up with <laughs> Um, So I believe he could spearhead. He has a good relationship with both companies. We'll see what happens. And our last topic is who... What actor and what actress would you like to see in a one-woman, one-man show on Broadway? This is all spurned because I saw Jodie Comer last night in Prima Facie* or Prima Fasci, however you pronounce it. I, I'm a lawyer. I should know how to pronounce it, which was a very, very invigorating, awesome play. She, I don't know how she did it. I actually bought the script as like a souvenir. Wow. And ju- yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and, and just reading through it, it's a very difficult subject matter. It is about you know rape and and, and defending domestic abusers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then the crazy happy the crazy thing happens to her. She herself is raped. Wow. And she is now on the other side of the table as a woman who is not believed when she was defending men mm-hmm. who were accused. So very interesting. Uh, a, a good discussion on the legal system and whatnot. And she had all the emotions and just seeing her as a one woman show for 90 straight electric minutes was unbelievable. It was the first preview last night. The stage door was monumental. I couldn't even see her get in the car. There were hundreds of people there. So all the props to her. I definitely think she'll win a Tony if she's eligible for it. So here we are. If we, someone as good as Jodie Comer, who would we choose? Let's start with an
1: actor. Tony, why don't you go first? So my actor is going to be Bradley Cooper. And, yes. uh, the basis of that is I know that he also did a one man performance, uh, as the elephant man. And yes. I unfortunately didn't have a chance to see that, but I heard that his performance in that role was a- exceptional. That's, and that's an understatement from what I've heard. Um, I just think that Bradley Cooper has done an exceptional job throughout his acting career, really creating the balance of humor and comedy with drama and suspense. Um, I mean, he's just a talented actor all around. You know, from a and a director too, and a great director too. Yeah, I mean, Star is born. Yes, well, that I I mean, if that's like the best case study for how great an actor he is, like that—that is it. That's that's the that's a movie you need to see for sure. Um, And and obviously, you know, we all know him from the Hangover movies and Guardians of the Galaxy, of course. But Silver Linings Playbook is my personal favorite of his. Just that really raw emotion uh, that comes through in that movie. Just a great, great performance all around. He's he's one of the better, uh I would say I, I don't know if he necessarily calls himself this, but I would say he's one of the better method actors. He just embodies the role in such an emphatic way. It's just really great all around.
0: He's a great triple threat. As you mentioned, he's in Guardians of the Galaxy, plays the voice of Rocket, but he's also real visceral on screen. He could play that comedic, the comedic tone and hangover, but also serious roles. Um I forgot what movie it was called, but the one where he was kind of, he was in the the army, he was in the war, and he was the sniper. Oh, American Sniper. Yeah, American I just found out myself. (laughs) American Sniper and, you know, really, really talented guy. Triple Threat for sure. That's a great pick. I'm going to go with another BC. Another BC. (laughs) Ryan Cranston. And I just finished Breaking Bad for the first time this past weekend. What an incredible, incredible show. And all the props to him. I think he won like three or four Emmys for his portrayal of Walter White. But I think he's one of the most talented actors in the biz right now. You know, you've seen his comedic chops in Malcolm in the Middle. You've also seen his dramatic chops in, of course, Breaking Bad, amongst other things. He's in a show on Showtime called Your Honor, uh, where he plays a judge, hence the title. (laughs) And his his son actually kills somebody and he has to cover it all up. So very, very interesting that's on its second season. I would just love to see him. He seems like a really nice guy. And just his acting chops are just unparalleled as well. So I'd go with Bradley Cooper. I would pay good money to see that. And now let's move on to the actress. And Tony, since you went first, I will go. Yes. I'm going to go. It's tough. It's a toss up. I was going to go with Anne Hathaway initially because I I, I love her in Les Mis and she's done many other things as well, Interstellar. But I'm going to go with Kate Winslet. Oh, okay, That's a good pick. She she's been around for some time and first of all I saw did you watch Mare of Easttown? Uh no, have not no. On on well now, Max, but an HBO original. <laughs> she was great in that. Um it, kind of focusing on her as a detective. But I just think that she her her ability to really dive into these roles. I think she she played um the lover of Saoirse Ronan in Ammonite. she was in *Avatar: The Way of Water* recently. She was in *Titanic*. She, she's just such a decorated actress, really so powerful. And then *Mayor of Easttown* as well. I would love to see her on this on the stage. I don't think she's ever done an adaptation on stage before. No, I may sure. be wrong about that, yeah. uh, but I definitely would like to see her. How about yourself?
1: So, um, I I would actually want to see uh, a one one woman comedic show. And if I'm going to see it, it's going to be with Melissa McCarthy. Okay. I think she's just a, a really funny actress um, and has um, embodied serious roles in her own way. But I think that she's just so talented. She's like, you know, there, there's so many great female act, uh, actresses and certainly great comedic actresses at that. But there's just something about Melissa McCarthy that she's just like, I can't get over all the scenes from bridesmaids. bridesmaids. Oh my God. Just like did you actually? Did you ever see Spy
0: with Jason Yes, Statham? I did. <laughs> I actually, I really enjoyed her in that yes, movie. That was, was a great. really, really good movie. And I think uh, it was it was Jude <laughs> Law in there as well, right? Yes, yes. Very good movie. I, I like that. And 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 female co- comedians are are hilarious.
1: Oh yeah, and, and you know, like I said, she's done a variety of different you know uh, serious roles. I know that she was in. Um, uh, I, I think she was in a movie called. Uh, uh, Identity Thief, I won't... Jason Bateman. But I think that's comedy, right? Uh, but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but,
0: came out in 2015, I think.
1: Right, yeah. Or uh, Yeah, I think I that's right. Check. Um, but, you know... 2013. She, she's going to be in the new Little Mermaid movie. She's playing Ursula, Ursula which I think is yeah. a great, great uh, casting there. Um, she, she's just great. Um, oh, I, I know... I remember the series movie that she was in, uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me?, which was also a very good performance as well by her. Um, just a great actress all around. I think there, there's just something, she has that panache that I can't, can't, Je ne sais quoi. Je ne sais quoi. You know, she's just great. I love Melissa McCarthy. I would pay whatever amount of money to see her on stage. I love that. All right. And that brings it to the end of our ninth
0: episode. As a reminder, again, we will be in, the PNT Knitwear uh, podcast studio, where unfortunately Tony's feeling a little bit under the weather, so yeah. we are separated.
1: Probably, apologies in
0: advance for sounding nasally, but uh, T- Together but apart. I sound like we're back in COVID times. <laughs> we're both in New York, uh, you know, just obviously taking precautions and whatnot. And we will be with Ian Rosenberg next week. We will also be at New York Law School, both our alma mater uh, with students and potentially a special guest. We will see. We're still working on that. So that will be very exciting as well. So thank you to all of you guys for listening and, and sticking with us. We really do appreciate it. Thank you, PNT Knitwear. Thank you to my cousin Hunter Zarin and Tony. Why don't you take us on home?
1: Yes, of course. And thank you to all of you for listening to this episode of End Scene and Entertainment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us on all social media platforms at End Pod. And until next time, End Scene.